Well, Unji had to make a decision that would change her destiny. She had to make the decision whether she would obey the government and follow its commands and its dictates or break the law in order to provide food for her family. So she's in North Korea. There was a time of great famine or great time of no food. And so in order for her to get food for her family, she knew that she had to become a smuggler. So she finally made that decision to leave the country to go find some food and smuggle it back into the country for her family. She knew the penalties were stiff. Usually there was an arrest. Usually it meant imprisonment. And often the imprisonment meant a labor camp, which would then move her into some hard labor. Often, at least some of the labor camps, it was a 40% death rate. So you can see the gravity of the decision she had to make as she was looking at becoming a smuggler. So she does that, and as God would have the plan, she leaves North Korea, slips into China, and looking for food that she can bring back, who do you think she comes in contact with? But some Christians that wanted to provide rice and other food supplies for her family. So she starts to build this relationship. She brings it back into the country. And of course, this is again another part of the risk, crossing the rivers, moving through harsh weather and other parts of the season. And she would do this. And well, she had to do it numerous times. And each time the risk was greater because she never knew who was going to be an informant, were there trustworthy smugglers. And each time she slipped out, she was like, where is this all going? So she continued to do this. And as she continued to make contact with these Christians in the church, they invited her into joining this Christian fellowship. For, of course, she was reluctant, not being familiar with any of this. And over time, weeks actually, very short period of time, she comes into a personal relationship with Jesus Christ. She then continues the smuggling, bringing in food, but now she was asked to do something that would put her life at even greater risk. The Christians wanted her to start not only smuggling in food, but Bibles. So she would bury a single Bible into the food, the rice packs, and then bring that back into the country. But of course, that created new problems. For who could she trust to give a Bible to? Who would be able to receive it without her being in more conflict or trouble with the people and authorities in North Korea? And if you're familiar with North Korea, you know that just being caught with a Bible is enough for imprisonment or more. So here she is. She makes the decision to start smuggling in Bibles. And of course, as she starts trying to talk about her faith with other people, she recognizes that some people are just not all that committed. And so she had to be even more careful to whom she would give the Bible. And slowly over time, she brought in more Bibles. Well, now she was afraid, am I going to get caught with these Bibles? So she starts burying them in her backyard until she could find the right people to give the Bible to. And slowly over time, she started dispersing Bibles into North Korea. Well, as time came on, she eventually, over so many trips, decided to defect 
out of North Korea. And of course, that's what she needed to do because the death threat was so great. But as I think about this simple story about this courageous, bold woman of faith, I forced myself to ask, how far would I go? But it's not fair for me just to ask about myself. Let's ask about you. Would you be willing to put your life at risk to get a Bible to people that had none? What would cause you to say yes as it caused Unji to say yes? Well, this morning what we're going to do is look at the Scriptures and what drove Unji. If you have a Bible, would you open with me to Matthew chapter 22? Matthew chapter 22. We're just going to read a couple verses in Matthew 22, verses 34 to 40. If you're able to stand, could I invite you to stand for the reading of God's Word? Verse 34, hearing that Jesus had silenced the Sadducees, the Pharisees got together. One of them, an expert in the law, tested Jesus with this question. Teacher, which is the greatest commandment in the law? Jesus replied, love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your mind. This is the first and greatest commandment. And the second is like it. Love your neighbor as yourself. All the law and the prophets hang on these two commandments. Let's pray together. Father, we sang this morning inviting the Spirit. We sang this morning wanting to hear Your voice. And God, if there's ever a time for us to hear Your voice, it's this moment in this service. We gathered for one purpose, and that was to come and worship You And in worshiping you, we'd hear from you, that you'd speak to us, that you would transform us and change us. Oh, that we would have the courageous, bold faith of women like Unji. God, that you would make us courageous people to live the way you call us to live. Pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. You may grab a seat. Of course, as we talk this morning, and you already heard, we're going to do some texting. And of course, we always want to open up some texting for questions, something I might say, something that might be confusing, and you say, hey, could you say a little more? But also, we want to really dive into this area of light for the future as well. I'm going to bring some things in a little bit about that, uh, more detail of where we are for light for the future. So as we read this passage, we need to remember where we are with the life of Jesus. Jesus, remember, you had Palm Sunday. And on Palm Sunday, he was starting to receive worship. And people were clamoring to see him. The stories were starting to circulate. More and more people were in Jerusalem. It was just an exciting awesome time to be there, but the religious leaders, primarily the Pharisees and the Sadducees, were now starting to get more concerned about Jesus Christ. They were more concerned about what he was saying, where he was going, and what he was doing. Everything was intensifying. So you got to feel the intensity of this, and the rift between Jesus and the religious leaders was getting wider and greater. So they were on high alert. They were watching Jesus. And what they were really curious about was a couple things, and we can hone in on that. One was, he seemed to teach and preach with an authority. And they're like, where does he get this authority? 
Then, not only was he teaching with this, this sense of authority, but there were all these stories that were starting to circulate about miracles and these great works that he was doing. And where was he getting this power and how was that taking place? And then, on top of that, the fact that he would receive worship really concerned them. And then he was making some claims by this time that he was the Messiah. So all this was, was pulling together a focus and they were honing in. So when we get into Matthew here, what we begin to see, one, if you're a Matthew reader, if you read the Gospel of Matthew, you'll find out that Matthew likes threes. He tends to do things in threes, sets of threes. So he, gets, he gives us three stories about Jesus' authority and these things Jesus is doing. But then he brings us into a set of three challenges. Now we're only looking at one of the challenges. But the first challenge was a simple one. It was a group of Pharisees and they were concerned about Jesus' allegiance to Israel or to Rome. And so they thought they could trap him by saying, well, should we pay taxes to Caesar? And you know the story. He pulls out a coin. I mean, just in a shrewdness and wisdom, he pulls out a coin and he says, well, whose picture's on the coin? And he says, render to Caesar what is Caesar's and render to God what is God's, right? So they kind of were bamboozled by Jesus. They were like, whoa, we can't trap him. Well, then the Sadducees came in and said, hey, give us a stab at it. And they start challenging Jesus and they challenge him on this issue of the resurrection. Now that's interesting because the Sadducees didn't even believe in a resurrection, they didn't hold to that. So now what they wanted to do was set Jesus up for this thing that would cause a conflict. They were trying to drive a political wedge into the leadership because some of the leadership, the Sadducees, were against resurrection in the end and the Pharisees opened the door for one. And so the, the, the Sadducees were trying to get Jesus to pick a side. We see that all the time today too, right? you got to pick a side. And so they're trying to get Jesus in there, and they said, well, hey, let us give you a scenario. A man marries, and he dies. Does his brother get his wife? Does his next brother? Does his next brother? And Jesus says, well, you're so foolish about all these questions, and shifts it into another direction about that there's no marriage in the resurrection anyways. So why are you talking about all this, right? But the passage we're looking at this morning the Pharisees now come and circle back and they're trying to trap Jesus. They're not trying to gain insight from Jesus. They're not interested in learning from Jesus. As we see right at the beginning, hearing that Jesus had silenced the Sadducees, right? So we, we see this idea of silenced, right? He silenced the Sadducees. And so what, what we're talking about here is, is Jesus put a, a muzzle on them. It was like they couldn't say anything more because they were so shut down. But now the Pharisees are coming back and, and they get together. The Pharisees get together and they say, well, let's just get one of us. Just one of us. An expert in the law. So those are the lawyers the, the scribes, if you will, and they were going to, here the translation is tested. Some of you will have a translation that is trapped. The context is more they're trying to trap Jesus. They're, they're trying to push him into a place to cause more division among the people. And the question is, which is the greatest commandment? 
right? So Jesus is pressed into this place of the greatest commandment. So what we want to start looking at is that Jesus is going to align us with the things that really matter. So when Jesus starts getting pressed, the greatest commandment, right? You probably are familiar enough with the Old Testament. You and I know there's a lot of commands in the Old Testament. You could just take something like the Ten Commandments, and all of you I know have memorized them so you could recite them pretty easily, and you would say, okay, well, which of the Ten Commandments is the greatest, right? So you, you all kind of at times feel like this, this tension of these different commandments. And so what Jesus is doing, he gets the question, and then what we want to do is begin to look at what Jesus says, right? Now, when I, I look at this, this scenario, all of us have been involved in it. Let me give you just one where I was, and then I'll bring you into one that I'm sure many of you all have been in. So uh, ordination. Many of you know that pastors uh, usually go through an ordination process. Now, if the ordination is worth anything, meaning does it have value and not just a mail-in one, it means that you are going to sit down with a council of people and they're going to ask you a series of questions about what you believe, what you're going to teach, what your doctrinal stances are, and all these different positions in ministry. So I was in my ordination council, and I'll tell you the very first question, uh, it put me back on my heels, was, would you give us the list in order of all the kings of Israel? And when you finish that, would you take us into the kings of Judah and give us the appropriate dates? And I'm like, well, I can't do that. <laughs> and they all start laughing. You know, they set me up on all this, right? But they did start turning and started asking some harder questions. Now, one of the questions they asked me was about Lapsarianism. And you say, Lapsarianism? Well, you know what, if you don't know what it means, it doesn't matter because I didn't either. No. <laughs> so I, I'm trying to answer these, these different questions about Lapsarianism, and then they started pressing even deeper, right? Because what they were trying to do, it felt like, was trap me. How far or how much had I thought about these different issues? And one of them was, could Jesus sin? And I'm sure you've pondered that question a lot over your life, is that Jesus was tested or tempted. Could he have sinned, right? And so what they want to do is press me into this, and you start getting on the hot seat. Well, that's a little bit of what Jesus felt like at that moment, right? These questions were just pounding him, and they're trying to entrap him. Now, as far as you, probably, if you're married, you've probably had this experience. From time to time, you thought that you were married to a lawyer. Anyone experience that? You get into, I know Christians don't fight in marriage, but let's just call it a conflict, right? And all of a sudden, you know, your spouse starts just nailing you, and you feel like you are in a court of law, and she or he is an attorney, right? And we've all been there, that's why we laugh, right? Well, that's, that's what's going on here. There's just an intensity that I, I, I want you to begin 
to feel as, as we look at this. And so Jesus then wants to answer this. But as we look at questions like this, right, this wasn't the only one. Remember the question here in this one is, what's the greatest commandment? But that wasn't the only way that they would ask Jesus. So let me take you to another passage. Here's one where they were talking about the weightiest things, right? The weightier provision of the law. So again, they're, they're trying to press Jesus into these different things. And so when we think about the weightier thing, right? Well, what are they asking there? They're, they're trying to say, what are the things that are central? Like, what's most important? Very similar to the greatest question. It just has a little bit of a twist on it. And the problem is, in this passage, right? Let me just read it. Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, meaning lawyers and uh, Pharisees, hypocrites, for you tithe mint and dill and cumin and have neglected the weightier provisions of the law, justice and mercy and faithfulness. But these are the things you should have done without neglecting the others. And then Jesus just lays it out, you blind guides who strain out a gnat and swallow a camel. Now what he's not doing is denying that some of the things they were doing, it's not bad. It wasn't the issue of detail that was the problem. It was that they were neglecting the things that are central or core to God and to the things of the Old Testament. So you think of Micah 6.8. He has told you, O oh man, what is good and what the Lord requires of you, right? To do justice, to love mercy, and to walk humbly with your God, right? Or you think of like Hosea 6.6. God says, I, deserve, I desire mercy, not sacrifice. So, so there's this heart push that comes on. And so what we begin to see is that they started focusing on the law to the exclusion of the heart. And the Old Testament is all about the heart. It's all about relating to God. It's all about connecting to Him. And so what these Pharisees were doing was they were getting into the detail. Should we tithe off of some of these farming uh, things like herbs and, and dill and human, but they were neglecting. They were neglecting things like, look what it says, justice, like a sense of fairness, treating people with fairness or mercy, a, a kindness that we should exhibit. And right, I don't have to tell you or remind you, the past couple years, Christians have just gone big on the web and have just said so much that it sounds so harsh and so mean that there, there's a loss of love that we should be known for. And it's not that these things don't matter that we're debating, but it's the language we use and how we go about it and how divisive we become in all of it. And then, of course, there's the faithfulness or the loyalty to God as well. So when we come back here to Matthew 22, I want to show you how Jesus answers it, right? He comes in and Jesus replies. He says, here's the greatest commandment. And he, and he starts to quote Deuteronomy 6.5, right? And you know 6.4, that's the Shema, right? Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. And then he comes in and says, love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your mind. And then look what Jesus says. He says, this is the first and the greatest commandment. 
Now, let's just dissect a little bit. He, he uses these different words like heart and soul and mind. But even if we didn't know what the Hebrew understanding of those words were, you read this and you immediately, like me, get a sense. He's talking about loving God with all of your being. <laughs> with all of who you are. We're talking about just laying it all on the line for God, right? And that, that's what he's talking about. Now, if we try to dissect these a little bit, certainly the heart tends to be the, the center of our spiritual lives. And our souls, sometimes we like to use so, uh, psychological terms like mind, emotions, and will because that tends to be the immaterial part of a person, right? But there's overlap between how the Bible uses the word heart and how the Bible uses the word soul. Where when we read the word mind, right, we're, we're talking about our reasoning faculties, our logic faculties, right? So we're, we're putting reasoning and comprehending and thinking together and, and Jesus is saying, we've got to love God with all of our heart. The center of our being, our mind, emotions, and will, all of our thinking here is where Jesus takes all of this. And so what Jesus was recognizing was that the Pharisees and the Sadducees were failing to see the whole thrust of the Bible was to love God and love our neighbor. But here we're talking about loving God. Jesus is aligning us with the things that really matter. So while the Pharisees and Sadducees were asking good questions, there, there needs to be an alignment. There needs to be something that says, here's our North Star. Here's the way we should live. Here's the way we should go about our things. Now, today, you and I know that our culture wants love without truth. Our culture wants us to just love, 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 and they don't want to couple it with truth. But if you think about this just for a moment, you can't decouple this because if you take truth out of love, it becomes fake. It becomes dishonest. It's inauthentic. It's when someone really loves you and cares about you that they're speaking truth into your life. And if you pull this truth out, you lose the authenticity of the love and it becomes fake. But in our culture, if you start speaking of truth, and you know that we live in, and I prefer the term late modernity versus postmodern, I think we live in a day when we have pushed truth, if there is even truth, to the fringes, right? So we know there's certain kinds of truth that we try to argue for, but even our culture is pushing away that there is no absolute truth. There's no objective truth, but that's not true according to the Bible where there is objective truth. And it begins to tell us things about God and about ourselves and about our world. And if we shove all that away, then we do collapse not into what I would think would be love, but into just a sentimentality. And our culture then says, if you start coupling truth, well, now you're phobic, right? There, there, there's something going on inside of you that is uh, causing you to be labeled in a certain way, right? We become uh, overly critical or judgmental, right? And that's if we divorce truth from love. Now, you and I know, too, that truth without love is ugly, 
right? Truth without love is ugly. That's the person that's judgmental. They're, they're constantly pointing the finger. They're critical of everything because they don't have love. They don't see through the lens of mercy. And so that becomes a big issue in our culture is that we need to find a way to not only love people, but to speak truth to people. I was reminded this week that when we don't speak truth, when we shrink back on these cultural issues that are pressing us, we're breaking the ninth commandment. And you know the ninth commandment. Thou shalt not bear false witness. When we act like we believe and we think the way our culture is going, that marriage doesn't matter, that sexuality doesn't matter, that gender doesn't matter, what you're in essence doing is breaking the ninth commandment. Thou shall not bear false witness. Now, how do we do this becomes all the more important. And especially as a church, and especially my heart for Fox Valley Church, is that we would be people that would lead with love, but always coupled with truth. Otherwise, it's dishonest. Or otherwise, it is simply inauthentic. So let me just say a little bit more about how we're to love God, right? I, I opened up with a story about Unji, but here, here's some things about how to love God. Here's the first one I wrote down. Our love for God has to be exclusive. Jesus Christ just laid it on the line. He said, you can't serve two masters, right? You'll either hate one and love the other, right? Or you're going to choose one and you'll despise the other. Jesus just lays it out. And it's for us to hear, you and I cannot love or serve two masters. The love for God has got to be exclusive. Secondly, I wrote down priority love. Right Now, what do I mean by that? Remember the story, Jesus comes and, and He says this. He says, uh, I came to set father against mother and daughter against her mother and a daughter-in-law against her mother-in-law, right? What he's trying to do is he's trying to say, you know, there's all these relationships. And then he says this, and it's so powerful. He who loves his father or mother more than me is not worthy of me. Now, I'm going to tell you in a moment why that is so important and why when Christians get their affections disordered. When Christians don't keep love for God first, what happens? But before I get there, let me give you a third. An obedient love, right? Jesus said, He who has my commandments and keeps them, that's the man, that's the woman who loves me. And the person who loves me, He says, will be loved by my Father, and I will love Him, and I will disclose myself to Him. So if you say you love God, then there's something about obeying God. And so how we love God is through obedience. Now, I want to go a little further about how I personally have grown my love for God. Nothing magical about it. I know you all have probably the exact same things. But my heart, I want to guard it. I want to keep my affections for God white hot. And so here's how I've done it ever since I became a believer as I was discipled. The first thing, no magic to it, daily devotionals. Spending time with God 
every day. Not just to exercise and learn to somehow expand my knowledge, but to spend time with God. To sit with Him. And of course, that means an open Bible, and it means prayer, right? And so these become important parts of fueling our love for God. Now with that, I love to read stories. We need to read stories like the one I just told you about, Yoon Ji. We need to read stories about great women and great men that have just championed the faith because it fuels our own faith as well. Here's a, a second one I wrote down. So devotionals are the first. The second is church. I need you. I come in on Sunday morning, if my mind is is just not in the right place or my heart's not right there, I get around my brothers and sisters and it just begins to set my heart in a right place. And we need that. I know the church isn't perfect. I know things get said and things get done in a church that hurt. But let me tell you, you rip away the church and you're ripping away a big part of what God intended for us to grow spiritually. Here's the last I wrote down, serving, serving. We, we got to find a place. God has given everyone in this room gifts, gifts to use to further the kingdom work. And we need to be using that to, to serve. So let me just say a, a little bit more before I make my last comment here. The second is like it, Jesus says, and that is to love your neighbor as yourself. Now this becomes really significant, right? The first commandment without the second commandment is impossible, right? How can I really love God if I don't have a neighbor to love or if I'm not loving my neighbor? Because God is telling me to love my neighbor. So now, if I don't love God first, here's what happens. We begin to manipulate people. If we, as Christians are not filled up by God's love for us, where we feel confident in who we are as a woman, who we are as a man, who we are as a wife, who we are as a husband. If we aren't centered in that because God loves us, then what we're going to try to do is get from our spouse or our children or our co-workers what only God can give. And we're going to manipulate it from people. So what happens is if I don't see that I am fully and completely loved, I'm going to try to get from Kathy love that only God could give me. And I'm going to start manipulating her. I'm going to start trying to say things and do things to get her to do stuff for me so that I feel loved. Now, I've never done that in my whole marriage. And if you believe that, I got a few other things to sell you, right? Too much of my life has been not drawing on the perfect love of Jesus Christ for me. And I try to get it from people. Pastors do that all the time, right? They they move in a direction and they try to get a church to do something that only God can do for their souls. And it becomes just a train wreck and damaging. The controlling power that people have to get love from others when what Jesus is saying here is give love to your neighbor. Give love to your neighbor. 
And we need to constantly be doing that. And so our mission is to be telling and showing the story of Jesus, right? That's when we're at our best, when we're, we're talking about Jesus and showing Jesus' love. And so Jesus is constantly trying to bring us there. So if my first point is that Jesus aligns us with the things that really matter, our neighbors need to matter to us. And that pushes us right into light for the future. You know our theme verse is Isaiah 58, 10, right? If you pour yourself out for the hungry, right? And you, and you pour out your desires for the afflicted, then our light will shine. Then our love will come, right? And, and so we need to have this outward focus for people in our community. We need to go out there now, some people say, wait a minute, you've got to start in the church, and then you look at the people out there. Let me be really clear. As long as we lead with mission, looking at people out there, we'll always be taking care of people in here. There's a couple reasons for that, but a primary one is those people don't have a voice, and they need the hope of Jesus Christ. And you all know the story that Jesus told about who our neighbor is. And what did he say? He told several of them, but he talks about the father or the one leaving the 99 to go find the one, right? He talks about a lost coin and constantly there. And then he brings it down to a lost son. We need to be looking out there. And then as we do it, the second reason is unity. If we start focusing on ourselves, we will divide ourselves. But when you're focusing clearly on what Jesus' heart is to reach people far from him, it begins to galvanize a body, pulling them together to do what he's called us to do. Now, let me bring us a little further into light for the future. We've been talking about phase one a lot. Phase two is we've talked about expansion, right? So let me give you a diagram of what we look, are looking at. Now, this is a diagram that is... Uh, from the architects, and if we could pull that slide up on the diagram, thank you. So we, we've got our existing facility, and then what we're interested in doing is expanding into another ministry center, more journeyland space, a bigger space for community. Now, there are no plans. Let me reiterate. There are no plans. This is just some ideas. At Fox Valley Church, we work together to pull together the details. And so what you begin to see here is we say, hey, we're going to expand going east. What we're looking at is adding on building. So then this space becomes available for our children or for our students. But right now we're running out of more and more space. If you stand back, and just watch. Sometimes there's people sitting in the foyer like today. Sometimes people come in and there's no place for them to sit because we just feel so tight in here. And that just happens. That's why we started the service in the gym, right? We're just feeling the crunch of it. Well, now what's happened is student ministries is getting crunched for space so that they hardly even have a designated space. And if we're going to reach the next generation, we got to be serious about what's going on in student ministries. Then our children, they're coming and they're learning about Jesus, but they're getting crunched more and more in space. And so what we need to do is start looking at where we're going down the future. And so we're painting this picture. But let me give you a timeline. So as we look at the timeline, uh, we've recognized two phases. You can see that phase one was two years and we're way ahead of the game. We are, are just stunned at how God has blessed us, 
right? So what we want to do and what's new is we want to start information meetings this fall. We want to start talking to the body, start pulling together the teams that we need in order to move forward in it. But we first of all have to hear from the body. Now we already heard from the body uh, two years ago when we did the assessment and I brought that last week. Now we want to have face-to-face conversations. So this fall we're going to begin just talking about where we're going, why we're doing it, so that people can engage in conversation. So I know a lot has been said here. Let me just say next week, for those that have not participated, I'm going to invite you to participate. Just going to invite, there's a commitment card or an invitation card. They're in the back of the chairs if you want to grab those. No pressure, but we are asking people to pray. Just pray through it. Do you want to increase? Do you want to change? Whatever needs to happen. But we said we're going to do some texting. And so before I do that, let me just go ahead and and pray. And then I'm going to invite Pastor Brad up. Father, thank you for your spirit. Thank you for the truth of your word. Thank you, God, that Jesus aligned us, made it clear that we are to love God and love our neighbor. While all these other things are in the law, there's lots of commandments Jesus just hones in that everything else hangs on these two commands. So God, help us to walk in it. And now God, ask us, uh, we ask that you would help us converse over light for the future or any other things. We pray in Jesus' name, amen.